good morning, everyone. Realized I did not have Do Not Disturb on my commuter, so. And it is my son's birthday, and everyone's wishing him happy birthday today, so. Happy birthday, Jeremy. Let's, um, let's open with the word of prayer. Father God, as we come before you today, we thank you for this time to gather together. Um, Lord, in a country that is uh, still free to worship you, uh, even if it is growing increasingly hostile towards the gospel and towards Christians. Father, we, we do pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds to what you have for us that you would, Lord, enlighten our hearts and minds, that you would help us to understand what you are teaching us this morning. Lord, we come to you on Sunday mornings burdened so many times with the cares of the world, thinking about other things. Sometimes, Lord, we're just distracted. It's so easy to be distracted in this time. Lord, we We have cell phones and computers and televisions, and it's kind of dulled our minds. It's given us short attention spans. We want to think about anything but you, Lord. Movies and football games and basketball games and books and anything else. It seems for this brief time that we have together, it's so easy to watch and think about our watches and where else we could be. Father, I pray that this morning... You would just meet us and encounter us. Help us to focus on you, think about you, to dwell on you, to rejoice in the fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I was, um, I was looking for World Mission Sunday. I was looking at all the verses that they gave us in the, in the lectionary. And usually I just pick one passage and then I'll kind of look at the supporting passages or if we're preaching a series, I'll just pick... Uh, I'll look at a series that we have picked and and then pick some supporting passages. But in this particular instance, all of the verses were really good, and uh, they all really hit uh, the message. And so the the lectionary, the guys who did the lectionary or the people who did the lectionary this time really picked a very good string. Usually, uh, Old Testament and Gospel will mix, and then the Psalm and the New Testament might mix. But in this case, they went and all four linked up, although I didn't really get to hit the Psalm just because I didn't have enough time and the gospel message, though, in this uh, really begins, and most fo- folks are, are, are kind of surprised to find this out. Do you know where the gospel message really begins? Does anybody know? Where's the first hint of the good news of Jesus Christ? Where does it begin? In the garden. Does anybody know the verse? It actually begins... In the curse on the serpent. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now a lot of people, and when I was young, thought this meant that uh, women and snakes hated each other. Right? My wife, my wife often used that verse when I got a snake, right? I hate snakes, and it's from the Bible, right? And so my mom used this verse all the time, too. But that didn't explain why some guys don't like snakes. Now, I loved snakes. I just didn't like feeding them the rats. I can't stand rats, so that was the hard part. <clears throat> but 
uh, that's not really what's going on here. You see, the serpent and of so many things in the curse, uh, one of the words, one of the key words in the curse actually comes in the very next chapter with Cain and Abel, talking about the croucher and its desire being for you. And then all the way through Genesis, all the way through the Pentateuch, we really quickly find out that sin and Satan are really what is about, uh, this is about in the curse, and that goes all the way through Revelation. And so the enmity is between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And that doesn't mean that the people of God are going to hate the people of Satan. It really means that the people of sin are going to hate the things of God. They're going to always try to destroy the people of God. And we see that in the very next chapter. That's what the murder of Cain and Abel is about. The seed of Satan is trying to destroy the coming of Jesus Christ. And so he's trying to destroy the promise of the gospel. Now, Cain doesn't understand that, but that's what the murder is about. And we, we read about that later on in the New Testament. Cain was of his father, the devil. And we, we read that anyway. I don't want to get into all of that, but that's really what's happening. And to that end, the seed of the serpent is going to try to destroy God's kingdom in any way he can, and he's going to seek to destroy the offspring. It's in the nature of sin, then, to rebel against God. That's what the sin nature is. Sin is rebellion against God. It's missing the mark. It's a Greek archery term, of course, if you haven't heard that. Uh, sin's kind of missing. It's the distance between the mark and the arrow. But it's missing the mark. Sin is, but it's really rebellion or rejection of God. We, we, we have this nature, and we see it time and time again. It's talked about in Romans 7, verse 7 through 12. Why do we keep sinning, Paul says? He really is talking about why do we even have this sin nature after we come to Jesus. He says this, What then shall we say? That the law of God, is what he means here, is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Right? Listen to what he's saying here. Sin came alive, and I died when I heard the law. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So sin, at its very core, is a lie. It doesn't like the truth, but it needs the truth in order to be a lie. Right? In order to lie, I've got to kind of know the truth. I've got to be able to distort the truth in order to tell that lie. So once the law of God is spoken, once the truth of God is given, then sin rises up to rebel against it. So it deceives me, and through that, it kills me. What it means is it brings you eternal death. So the law is holy. That's what he's saying. Look, the law is not wicked, even though the law, he's saying, kind of kills us. What he means is the law itself wasn't wicked. Our sin nature is wicked, but it rises up when we hear the law of God. The commandment is holy and righteous, and it's good. This is the basic nature of sin. So it's always going to seek to defy God at every turn. And that's why you can't stop sinning, right? We can stop sinning in Christ Jesus, but apart from that, you've got a sin nature. How many of you have a thing or things 
that you do wrong that you've tried to stop doing wrong, and you keep doing it, right? You've got that thing, you've tried to stop it, and you keep doing it, right? That's why as Christians, we don't really, or we shouldn't be, wagging the finger at people who are struggling with a particular sin. Now, we all have that within us, right? I got this communique from a particular office in the church saying, man, if anybody's struggling with this sin, we're going to really crack down on that one, which I called the bishop's office and said, that's absurd. Why? I mean, that's obviously the sin that you're not struggling with, right? You didn't say lying. You didn't say cheating. You didn't say anger. You didn't say all the other things that you probably struggle with, but that sin that you don't struggle with, that's the one you want to crack down on. Because clearly in Scripture, that's what it says. That sin is the worst of all sins, which it says exactly nowhere in Scripture. Zero places does it say that. Yes, I talked to the bishop. I say it in a nicer term, but I do say it to other people. So it is that. We have that nature. We all do that. I do that. Look, I am convinced that your sin is worse than my sin. Right? In my heart, I just say, no, I don't think But we all think that at some point or another. I want to look at your sin and say, man, you are worse than me, right? Nathan looks at his wife and says, man, Sarah, you've just got to improve on that. That's just a natural thing. And Sarah's like, oh, Nathan, if you only knew how bad you were. That's just the way we are. We all think like that, right? That's why we get so mad at our spouses, if they could only see like us. And then the worst thing of all is when our children catch us in our sin. Have you ever had to apologize to your children for being wrong? Is there anything on the planet that is worse than that? Right? That is the hardest thing in the world for parents to do, to admit you're wrong. Right? Without saying, well, but, 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 but. Okay? And that's what Paul's pointing out here. This sin nature dwells up in us. It's within us, and that's what it is. That's why we can't stop doing wrong. It seeks to defy God at every turn. Now, when Christ Jesus comes within us, there's a change in that nature, right? But we still struggle with it. So basically, the sin nature is like a child hitting the terrible twos. Now, before that time, before they hit the terrible twos, you had a precious little baby boy or girl that misbehaved on occasion. But it wasn't so much because they only had the capacity to understand how, oh, sorry, but it wasn't so much because they only had the capacity to understand how to misbehave at a very shallow level. Rather, something happened somewhere in the twos, or for some children in the threes, because some people hit the terrible threes, where a light bulb switches on and the capacity to understand the rules goes through the roof in relative terms. And with that new understanding comes their comprehension of how to break said rules. They know that there are more rules, and they know now that they can break those rules. Psychologists say it's testing boundaries. Christians call it the sin nature. From our earliest days, we want to defy authority, and we have to learn to obey. Not that all authority is good. There's sometimes we have to break that authority. But... In the case of God, of course, it is. Teenagers have this thing that happens too. Somewhere between 13 and 14, they begin to learn how to think in the abstract, and that's why all of a sudden parents become idiots. They think that nobody has had this power before. 
But somewhere in that, they gain this power. And that's why they think that you, all of a sudden, are not that bright. Paul here is showing that the desire to break the law is deep in us. And as soon as we learn the things of God, and the more we learn the things of God, the more we have this desire to break those apart from Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Not every time, but most times. We're not utterly depraved. We're totally depraved, meaning this corruption runs throughout us, runs all through us. doesn't mean we constantly, like we're completely wicked. We're just, it's in us. Now, this sin nature comes to us naturally after the fall of Adam and Eve. That's what happened during the fall of Adam and Eve. It's called original sin. And so the hope of, gen- of, of salvation then comes in Genesis 3.15. But the promise of the spread of the gospel through the people of God comes to us in another verse, and that was in our Old Testament passage this morning, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord, remember Lord in all caps is Yahweh or Jehovah, however you want to pronounce that. He said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the promise to Abraham is that a Savior is going to come through his line. Now, there's other parts of that promise, right? That there's a Jewish nation that's going to come through him. There's also another nation that's going to come through Ishmael. But the main promise is that there's a, a, a line that's going to come through him where all the nations are going to be blessed. Now, you're mistaken if you just think that the Jewish nation is going to come through him, as the Apostle Paul points out, because not All of Israel is Israel. See, we often think that it's just if you were born Jewish, that's it. That's not what it is at all, because even in the Old Testament, God points out that that's wrong. Ahab was Jewish, but he wasn't of Israel. Why? Because he was wicked. He was of Satan. Manasseh was of Satan, right? Not the the one who the tribe was named after, but the king. In fact, Paul will later tell us this, Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Know then that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations will be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So faith in Jesus is what makes one a child of God. So we are saved by grace, right? Through faith. When people tell you you're saved by faith, that's actually incorrect. You're saved by God's grace, but the vehicle that we obtain this salvation is through faith. You've got to place your faith in God. Right? Faith comes through hearing the gospel. And hearing comes when you go and share the gospel. We've got to be sharing, but we've got to be telling folks, and then folks have to place their faith in that. And it comes through the grace of God, through the intervention of the Holy Spirit. So Abraham, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Paul says, is speaking, or hears, the gospel message. And this is why we read the Old Testament, and why we as Anglicans hold, that, hold what the historical church has taught since the beginning. That the Old Testament, there's been one plan of salvation since the Old Testament all the way through. This is called covenantalism. We believe that God has had one covenant from the beginning to the end. Now, this makes us different, right, 
than what a lot of Christians, probably even the majority of Christians, have believed since, uh, well, kind of since the 1800s. There's another teaching out there. I didn't even know this teaching until I went to seminary called dispensationalism. Dispensationalism, which is a teaching that entered the church in the 1800s, the teachings of an Anglican priest who left the Anglican church to join the Brethren Church. And this is why you don't leave the Anglican church people, right? The Brethren Church in England named John Nelson Darby. So famous dispensationalists would be Ryrie Schofield, if you read the Ryrie and Schofield Bible. Tim LaHaye, famous series. We all know Left Behind series. Jimmy Carter, famous president. Billy Graham, these are all famous dispensationalists. They would hold that the Bible had seven periods, time periods, or seven dispensations. And during these time periods or these dispensations, God worked differently to save people in different ways. And that fundamentally, he's going to work with Jews and Gentiles to save them in different ways, not through Jesus Christ. Now, dispensationalism has changed a little bit in the contemporary period, but that's fundamentally um, what was taught. We would say that from the earliest, and most of the church would say that from the earliest of Scripture, there's always been one plan for both Jew and Gentile, as Paul says later in Galatians 3, 27 through 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to his promise. And who else would Jesus have gone to save? Jesus went to the Jews to save the Jews. The apostles were all Jewish. The early believers were all Jewish. The Jerusalem council was Jewish. And so why would he be rebuilding a temple and restarting sacrifices and doing all of that nonsense? That's absurd. This is the teaching of Scripture, and it's been the sole teaching of the church until Darby came up with a brand new teaching in, 1800, in the 1800s. But Paul points out that in Jesus, we gain salvation, and it's through this message that we not only come to Jesus, but that we actually become one body. You see, this is the gospel message, and it's supposed to go out to the world. But here's the thing. The gospel message, whether you're dispensationalist or covenantal or wherever you are on the scale, has to be brought to the nations. They can't respond in faith if they don't hear. And so the question that the church is asking today, how many of you have shared your faith with another person in the last month? And you can say, all right, well, maybe that's ridiculous. All right, well, then the last six months or the last year. And if you haven't, why haven't you? Are you afraid to do it? Do you not know how to do it? If you don't know how to do it, just start sharing your faith. Or we can teach you some techniques. How many of you are giving to missions? How many of you ever thought about giving to missions? Now, many of us struggle in this area, but we see from our gospel passage this morning that Jesus commanded us all in 28, 19, 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the earth. So the command is for all the church to go to all the nations. But we are all part of that body, and we all have a part to play in the calling. And World Mission Sundays reminds us that it's a collective thing, but we are all part. We all have a part to play. We may not all be going into the foreign missions field, but we all have a part to play in sharing. It's a doable thing, but it's not doable if we as individuals don't do anything to help it come to pass. We do know that at the end of days, we have this image, Revelation 7, 9 through 12. After this, I look, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, that means from every people group, from all tribes, all peoples, and languages. Every language has not been reached. Every language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. I hear all these Christians on Facebook saying, these are the end of days. Really? The gospel hasn't reached all languages. You want it to be the end of days, yet you don't want to get out there and preach the gospel. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We know that the saved will come from every people group in the world and speaking every language. And during the tribulation, people will be killed in every group and every language. Yet we still haven't reached these groups. Why? Because there's no one to go. And so during this time, the church asks you to consider these things. Will you go? Are you called? Are you called to short-term missions? Would you consider that? Are you called to long-term missions? Would you consider that? Are you called to raise a missionary? Have you considered that? Are you called to local missions and service? Would you consider that? Are you supporting missions? Would you consider that? Pray on these things this morning and this week. Be a person at the very least who is supporting missions. But think about going on missions trips. Think about being an evangelist. Think about being someone who is actively involved in missions. Have you been doing your part to share the gospel with your friends, family, neighbors, and community? If not, why not? Let's take some time right now to think about these things, to pray on these things, and to have the Lord put on your heart right now the people with whom you can share the gospel of Jesus this week and to have the Lord put on your heart what missions you would like to support and what he is calling you to do. Let's bow our heads, think about that, pray on that. Amen.